Now, this is Luke 16, and you will find it after Luke 15 and before Luke 17. And it's a parable feast. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? Uh, 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who love money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Adam far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you Cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. We'll keep your Bibles open at Luke chapter 16. If you are just joining us tonight, one of the things we've been doing over the last few weeks is we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke and at some of Jesus' teachings. And what I love about Jesus is he's not afraid to deal with both the wonderful topics and the confronting topics. So last week we looked at the story of the prodigal son. It was a story of God's kindness, his love, celebration. It was so encouraging. And then this week, just one chapter later, Jesus brings up a topic which is very unpopular. He brings up a topic which is more than unpopular. It's hated today. It's a topic that Christians used to talk about quite a lot in centuries past, but now attempted to shy away from. It's the topic of hell, of judgment, of the afterlife. If you're new here tonight, this isn't something we preach on regularly, uh, but it's something that Jesus doesn't shy away from. Do you know that 13% of what Jesus taught in the New Testament was about hell and judgment? 13%. You sometimes hear people say the line, oh, the Old Testament God, I don't like him. Because he was on about judgment and hell. And then God went and got some anger management classes. 
just calmed down a bit, took a chill pill, and I much prefer Jesus in the New Testament. Well, no, Jesus often talked about hell, not because he loves hell, but because he came to rescue people from hell, to save people from judgment. And tonight what God wants to say to us is he wants to warn us. Warn us. He wants no one to be judged, no one to be in hell. He longs out of his kindness and his grace to save people. That's why he gave up his son. The question is, will we listen to the warning? In Jesus' parable tonight, he tells a story about two men, two men who have really different destinies. And there's three questions we're going to ask ourselves tonight. First question, hell. How do you get there? Second question, hell, what will it be like? Third question, hell, how do we heed the warning? Let's look at the first question, hell, how do we get there? Verse 19, look in your Bibles, chapter 16, verse 19, and Jesus tells this story. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Imagine this rich man, he's there, he is absolutely loaded, okay? This guy's filthy rich. He's wearing purple. There's not much purple here tonight. Uh, Tom Lingerfeld, a bit of purple, but you know, not much. If you are wearing purple tonight, congratulations, because back then purple was the color of luxury, the, the color of, you know, it's just a sign that you were loaded. You had a lot of money, you had a lot of cash. That's this man. He is wearing fine linen. Even his undies are just laced with gold. And this wasn't the, the clothes he wore, you know, on his special nights out. He wore this every day. I mean, he's wearing Louis Vuitton, you know, just around the house on a lazy day when he's watching Netflix. This guy is, he's loaded, driving around in his Ferrari. He's got houses in New York City, in London, in Mossman. He's got it all. And he drives in, though, every day into his driveway. He's got his huge gates there to his estate. And there in his driveway is a beggar, Lazarus. He knows who Lazarus is. He passes Lazarus all the time. In fact, later in the story, we'll see he knows Lazarus's name. He, always, he knows Lazarus. Lazarus is there. He's got nothing. He's covered in boils and sores. He needs medical attention. The wild dogs are coming and licking his sores. I mean, this guy's not being treated with dignity that he deserves at all as a human being. And, of course, back then there was no Centrelink. You know, what this guy needed, what Lazarus needed, was help from the rich man. That's what he needed. But the rich man, he just drives through into his gate, into his property, looks the other way. He, of course, knew God's command in the Old Testament, care for the poor. But he doesn't do anything. Now, let me ask you, out of the two men, Lazarus and the rich man, who would you prefer to be? Who would you prefer to be? Do you know the big difference between the two of them? It's not that one of them is rich and one of them is poor. That is a big difference. But you know there's a bigger difference. In this passage, only one of them is named. 
Did you notice that? The rich man is nameless in the parable, but Lazarus is named. You know, Jesus tells lots of parables in the Bible, but he hardly ever gives a name to any of his characters. Hardly ever. But here he does. And you know what the name Lazarus means? The name Lazarus means the one God helps. The one God helps. You see, Lazarus, he loves God. Lazarus knows God. Lazarus is known by God. He's a follower of God. And you need to know tonight, what matters more than your pay packet, what matters more than how fancy your clothes are, is whether you are known by the Heavenly Father, the creator of the universe. What matters more than how impressive the view of the harbour is in your place or how much money you've got to retire on or what your car is, what matters more than all of that is whether you trust and follow God. That was Lazarus. The rich man, though, well, he clearly didn't, did he? I mean, he, he may have known about God and, and knowing God's commands, but the Bible is clear. The evidence of you following God will be in your actions. This man, he was clearly short-sighted. He wasn't thinking about eternity. He wasn't thinking about God and letting that shape the way he lived. He was short-sighted, living for the here and now for himself. I went to the optometrist about five years ago. And uh, I hadn't been for a while, and I received the wonderful news, which I'm very proud of, proud of actually, that I have 2012 vision. I know you're all impressed. 2012 vision basically means that I can see at 20 feet what others can see at 12 feet. So it's better than 2020 vision. I'm very proud of it. Very proud. Of it. I think because when I go to the dentist, it's normally bad news, but the optometrist is good news. <laughs> And Christine started to realize that I, I go to the optometrist quite regularly. I said, why do you go so regularly? Your eyes are great. You're just going because you want to brag about your eyes. And it's absolutely true. That is why I go. <laughs> I can see things far in the distance. This man, opposite problem. He has short, he's short-sighted. He's only thinking about himself here and now, not letting eternity, not letting God shape the way he lives. And, you know, sometimes I think we can be a bit like that man. We can be very short-sighted, can't we, with the way we spend our money. We obsessively worry about money in the here and now. Or we're a workaholic. We always want more, forgetting that none of it will last. Or we're an overspender. We spend more and more, forgetting that our money isn't actually ours. It's God's. Or we're a hoarder, storing up money not spending it, and forgetting we can take none of it with us beyond the grave. We think about the holiday, the car, the mortgage, and we don't think about our money in light of eternity. It's not just money, though. Every part of our lives, our talents, our time, our gifts, our, our work, everything, do we live in light of eternity to come, in light of God? Now, for this man, the deeper issue, of course, was more than just his money and whether he gave money to Lazarus. It was his heart. 
It's his heart. God cares tonight about your heart. He cares about your money too, but much more he cares about your heart. And Jesus is telling this story to the Pharisees. And you see in verse 14, if you look back up, verse 14, this is what it says about the Pharisees and their heart. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The Pharisees, they've got a heart problem. They, they love money. They don't love God. God had called them to love him and to serve others. They clearly had a heart issue. Same with the rich man. We're not saved by our good works. We're not saved by whether we give money to the poor. We're saved by God's kindness. But the Bible's clear. If you truly have a trust in Jesus, it will overflow into the way you live. The the evidence that we love God vertically is that we love others horizontally. That's what the book of James says in the Bible. Faith without works is dead. True faith will result in obedience to God. Our hearts will be so joyful, so thankful for all God has done for us that we just want to serve him. We want to obey him. This man, he clearly had a heart problem. God was not in his, God was not the God of his heart. It was money. God sees your heart tonight. He wants you to serve him, not serve other things, other lesser things, but serve the creator, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. To live for him in light of eternity, to not be short-sighted, but live in light of what is to come. God cares about our hearts. Let's move to our second question. Hell, what is it like? What is it like? Let's pick back up in verse 22. Verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. You see, it it doesn't matter whether you're filthy rich or dirt poor, we all face the same fate, don't we? We're all going to die. It just says the beggar died. Perhaps no one noticed that Lazarus had died. Maybe he was invisible in the sight of his suburb, his neighbourhood. It says the rich man was buried. So maybe he had money for a fancy funeral, you know, gold-plated coffin. Maybe all his rich friends were there and he, you know, he'd saved up money for a fantastic feast. But in the end, they both died. Death is awaiting us all. We can pretend it's not coming and it will hit us like a rude slap in the face. Death is coming. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is he died for us and rose again to defeat death. So death is not the end. Both these men, they both die. And Abraham finds himself carried by the angels to heaven. He's at Abraham's side. 
If you don't know Abraham, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Abraham was the spiritual father of the Jewish nation, God's people in the Old Testament. Lazarus is there. He's in heaven. The rich man, he ends up in Hades, the place of the dead. He ends up in punishment. Their situation on earth is radically reversed. Now, did you notice? The rich man ends up there in hell, and he, 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 doesn't, he still doesn't repent, does he? He still doesn't say, God, I'm so sorry for ignoring you. I'm sorry for all I've done. Lazarus, I'm so sorry for ignoring you in the driveway all those years. No, instead, he's still entitled, so entitled. All he cares about is escaping the consequences of his actions, not repenting. And he even asks Lazarus, he's so, so arrogant, he asks Lazarus to give him a sip of water. I mean, Lazarus was asking for food back on earth. Rich man never gave him anything. And here's the rich man asking for Lazarus to serve him. Still entitled. Now, this is a parable Jesus is telling. This is not a historical account. This is Jesus telling a story. He's making up a story, Jesus is, to teach us something. So we, we can't actually press every detail of this parable and say, okay, this is exactly what heaven and hell is going to be like. But I think we can learn some things. And other parts of the Bible reinforce these things. We don't have time to go to those other parts of the Bible. There's a few things we learn, I think, about hell. Firstly, it will be a place of punishment. Punishment. In verse 23, Jesus says that the rich man is in torment. In verse 24, the rich man says he is in agony. He's in fire. Again, it may not be literal fire, but the picture is clear. He's being punished. The second thing I think we learn about hell is that it will be permanent. Permanent. Lazarus calls out, sorry, the rich man calls out and asks to cross over to heaven. And Abraham says that there is an uncrossable chasm. His fate is permanent. Some people believe in the idea of purgatory. After you die, you have a chance to to pay back for your sins or to change your fate or to repent or to get out of hell and into heaven after you die, that's not in anywhere in the Bible. This passage makes clear that we are judged based on this life, whether we've responded in this life. And the other thing I think we see about hell here is that it will be populated populated. In other words, people will be there. It's simply not the case, this idea that some people call, it's called universalism, that God will save everyone, that no one will end up in hell. The Bible is clear, and this passage is clear, that people will end up there. 
Now, this is not an easy passage to preach. I've been confronted that us as preachers must not shy away from what Jesus doesn't shy away from. But maybe as you hear this, like me, you're just devastated and thinking, gee, does the, does the punishment really fit the crime? Isn't this a bit too extreme? Of course, it depends on how serious you think the crime is. If someone faces a life sentence in jail for stealing a loaf of bread, we would say the punishment does not fit the crime. But if someone faces a life sentence for genocide, well, of course we would say the punishment fits the crime. And the crime here is rejecting God, the creator of us, one who gave us everything, who gave us life, who gave us, who loved us. And we've said to God, God, we don't want you. God, we're going to live life our own way. God, stay out of my life. We've rebelled. The punishment truly fits the crime. You see, if you take away hell out of the Bible, you actually downplay God's perfection and his holiness. He is the perfect God, the wonderful God, the pure God who cannot tolerate any offense to his name. And if you take away hell, you actually minimize God's justice. He's a fair God. He's a judge. He would judge wickedness. He would judge evil. And as we're going to see later, if you take away hell, you minimize God's love as well. Of course, in many ways, we send ourselves to hell. We say to God our whole lives, God, I don't want you. Stay out of my life. God, I don't want you. Stay out of my life. I'm going to do it my way. Stay out, stay out, stay out. And God eventually says, okay, if that's what you want, then okay. The writer C.S. Lewis says this line. In the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Our third question, hell, how do we respond to the warning? You see, God wants to warn us tonight. God loves us, deeply loves us. He wants no one to suffer. He loves us so much, he gave up his son to die for us, to suffer hell in our place so we could be forgiven and escape judgment. I mean, it's only when you think about God's punishment towards sin that you realize how much he loves you that he would give up his son to rescue us from all of that. And so tonight, God wants to warn each and every single one of us. He wants to remind us his arms are open. He longs to save us. He longs to welcome us into his family. And so the rich man in this story, his first instinct is to warn people, to warn people, to warn his brothers. Look there at verse 27. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family 
For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, then they'll repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The rich man says, can you send someone to warn warn my brothers? And Abraham says, no, they have Moses and the prophets. Now, Moses and the prophets is basically shorthand for the Old Testament. That's what that's referring to there, the Old Testament. These people, uh, the rich man's brothers, would have had the Old Testament scriptures. Abraham's saying, they have all the warning they could ever need in the Bible. In the Bible, it talks about God's love. In the Bible, it talks about his kindness, his grace, the way he wants to save us, the way he wants to rescue us. All that we need is in the scriptures, in the Bible. If they're not going to listen to that, they won't listen to anything else. And that's the same with us tonight. We have all the warning we could ever need in the Bible that's sitting in front of you. God has shown himself to us, shown his grace. How can we say to God, God, that's not enough? Well, the rich man pushes again. He says, okay, but what if someone, sh- what if someone rises from the dead? in front of my brothers. That'll be good. Then they'll say sorry. Then they'll believe. And I'm sure you've heard someone say that before, haven't you? Maybe you said that yourself. I would become a Christian. People say, I'd become a Christian if Jesus just showed himself in front of me right now. You heard that before? If Jesus showed himself in front of me right now, did a few miracles, turned water into wine, uh, you know, a few other party tricks, then I'd become a Christian. And again, God's already shown himself to us, hasn't he? He sent us Jesus. Do you know no other religion is that verifiable? If you're someone here tonight and you're still exploring Christianity, one of the things that stands out Christianity from so many of the other religions is, is God actually entered our world. He, as one writer talks about it, he wrote himself into the play there is no other religion that is so verifiable because God walked amongst us. He opened himself up to public scrutiny. People witnessed Jesus. People witnessed his death and his resurrection. Hundreds of people saw him after he rose again. And in the Bible, we have that account. We have those records. God has changed the lives of so many people in this room. How could we say to God, God, that's not enough? Jesus wasn't enough. The cross wasn't enough. I want to see more. Show yourself to me. If our hearts are too hard to believe that, perhaps they're too hard to believe if someone rose from the dead in front of our eyes. We have Jesus who died for us, suffered hell in our place. No greater love than that. The question is, will we respond to him? The rich man, what he wanted for his brothers was that they would repent. It says here in verse 30 that they'd repent. That's what God wants for us tonight, that we would repent, turn to him, trust him, 
Receive his forgiveness. Receive his love. Be forgiven. To turn from our old way of life and trust him. Maybe you're thinking, well, you're just using scare tactics now. You're a preacher using scare tactics to try and scare me into becoming a Christian. In a way, I am. I think that's what God wants to do. He wants to save us, to rescue us. If you're here tonight and you are a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, will you warn others? Will you warn others? That's what the rich man wanted to do for his brothers. He wanted to warn his brothers. Maybe you're hearing this like me and just, you know, with tears in your eyes, just thinking about people you know, people you love. And of course, if you saw someone that you love about to get hit by a car, what would you do? You'd yell out, get out of the way. And God's calling us tonight to warn others, not just to share the bad news, but more than that, actually to share the good news of Jesus, the hope of the world, the one who died for us and rose again, our Savior, our King, the Lord of the Lords, the one who came to give us life to the full, life everlasting. Charles Spurgeon, he said this quote, and it's graphic. He says, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and be saved. If hell must be filled... At least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Will you warn others, those you know, those you love? God is warning us tonight. Jesus talks about the wonderful truths like the prodigal son last week. And then he talks about the confronting things. But his message of hope and grace is still the same. Come to him. Be saved. Be rescued. Be forgiven. He is a God of grace. He's a God of love. He longs for all to be saved and gave up his son. Will you listen to the warning? Will you come to him and be rescued and enter into everlasting life? Let's pray. Father God, this is such a confronting topic. As we look at this story, we can't help but be moved and be shocked. Father, you are good and you are loving and we thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray, Father, that for those in this room who haven't turned to you, that they would do so. We pray for our friends. We pray for our family that they would hear the hope of Jesus, that you'd give us opportunities to share the gospel, the good news. Father, we pray that you would move our hearts to heed your warning, to trust you, to follow you. And help us not to be like the rich man. Help us to fix our eyes on eternity, to not just live 
short-sighted at the here and now, but live life in light of what is to come, remembering Jesus and letting that shape our lives. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.